Today on episode number 404 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I welcome back to the show, Ramey Kalir, to talk about Annotation Is. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Ramey Kalir is an Associate Professor of Learning Design and Technology at the University of Colorado Denver School of Education and Human Development. He researches how annotation facilitates social, collaborative, and equitable learning. Ramey is lead author, along with Antero Garcia, of Annotation, the MIT Press 2021, an introduction to annotation as a genre, or a synthesis of reading, thinking, writing, and communication, and its significance in scholarship and everyday life. He was the 2020-21 Scholar-in-Residence with the Annotation Organization Hypothesis, and is also a co-founder and facilitator of the Marginal Syllabus. His research about annotation has been supported by an OER Research Fellowship from the Open Education Group and a National Science Foundation Data Consortium Fellowship. Ramey Kalir, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. It is so good to see you. It is wonderful to be back. You probably have heard this overused expression, but I'm going to do it anyway. The expression goes, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. I want the story. I want the story, buddy. What do you got for us? <laughs> I feel like we, I don't know, you've been on the show four or five times or something. And oftentimes it relates back to annotation. And since we last spoke, I feel like I had a new way of perceiving annotation around me. It has to do with our kids. Hmm. And so we have, we have, I, d- I realized this after the fact, every single faucet in our home has temperature controls that are a matter of degrees. How much cold water would you like? How much hot water? With one exception. And it is a treat for our children. They love to take a bath in mommy and daddy's bath because it is quite large. I'm sort of embarrassed to admit this, but I'm just going to let it hang out there. It may or may not even have jets. That's what we're talking about here. So this is a very exciting bathtub, but I realized it's the only faucet in our entire home that you have two separate faucets to control. I'll be darned if I ever have remembered which one is hot and which one is cold. And I noticed one of our children, I don't even know when this happened. I don't know which one it was. Actually, I do know which one it was, but I'm not going to name them because I didn't get their permission in advance. But they had gone upstairs to my office to my label printer, didn't ask, I mean, just because they, I mean, it's their tools that they're allowed to use, you know, just, but just had printed out a label for hot, printed out a label for cool, cold, and it's on there. And literally it just solves the problem for the entire family. Anyone wants to take a bath. There's no fear over which one is which. It's very, very clear. And I thought, annotation is. 
And that's actually why you're here today is to talk um, way more than I've been talking to talk about what is annotation is. And are you seeing any annotation in New York ways in your life? (laughs) Oh, Bonnie, that story is so fantastic. So first of all, again, thank you for inviting me back. I love your story. And so folks may or may not know that last year I published a book with my dear friend and colleague, Antero Garcia, called Annotation. It's part of the MIT Press's Essential Knowledge series. And so the purpose of that book is to provide a kind of broad, engaging introduction to important topics, and in our case, annotation. And so in crafting that book, we wanted to foreground key affordances of annotation. And the very first one that we describe is the way in which annotation provides information. And that's a key thing that annotation does. Annotation provides information. It's done so for centuries, whether it's translating a text from one language to another, whether it's providing instruction in some way, annotations provide information. And actually a key type of annotation then is a label. And we talk about labeling. And now there's all kinds of different ways that annotation labeling occurs. And in fact, in our current quote unquote, knowledge economy, there's a lot of data labeling. And in in fact, data labeling powers things like AI and helps to inform all kinds of computational methods. But it can also be material and it can be reflecting the built environment. And so the fact that your child got, as you said, a labeler, made labels, printed out labels, and then put them on the built environment, added a note, to a text, in this case, the text is a designed object. It's this sink, it's this tub, it's got these faucets, it's got a function, but it needs information. And the act of annotation is making that information explicit. It's providing that information to other users of that tool. I love the example. It is so, so wonderful. And again, speaks to really now what is my big passion project, which is to help people see annotation all around them to help appreciate that annotation is an everyday literacy practice and that you, Bonnie, but also you, listener, you who may come across this podcast at some point in time, you are an annotator. And I really want to talk about that today. Yeah. And so you started a project. Did you start it on January 1st? Was it very... I did. I did. And so, you know, Again, my work as a researcher and as an educator is increasingly you know, embracing annotation as a practice. And in my work, again, as I talk to educators and teachers and other researchers, I consistently am reminded about the idea that annotation is all around us and that you are an annotator. And so as the new year began on January 1st, I thought I should start a project where I share a little provocative entry point, a little provocative image, a little provocative something that helps people to think about annotation and maybe to do so in new ways. And so this new project is called Annotate22. And that's the name of the project and then the name of the hashtag. And every day this year, I am sharing examples of where we read and write and compose and create and contest the world around us, knowledge, information, and narrative. And we do all of that through the practice of annotation or the addition of a note to a text, like a label on a faucet. I am really excited that you're going to be willing to share lots and lots of ideas with us in just a moment. And I'm going to sit back and enjoy that part of the podcast. Before we get there, though, 
even just hearing you talk about it, not not just today, but also all the conversations we've had, this to me, while well, the first part of our conversation was the kind of annotation that provides information, yeah. I know that for you, you don't want us to stop there. And I also know that for you, this has deep meaning and significance. This this is this feels to me that it goes beyond scholarship. It goes beyond teaching. Talk talk a little bit about some of the deeper meanings for this this work for you and and what you think it can make a difference in your life, but also the lives of people really all over the world. Well thank you. I mean I, I appreciate that. I I think that my journey to finding the language of annotation and to appreciating its practice in my life has been one that's taken many, many years. I could point to moments in my life, for example, maybe when I was studying abroad in Northern Ireland and was surrounded by murals and all kinds of street symbols and all kinds of ways that people in a variety of communities were marking up their built environment as expressions of identity and history and counter narrative. I could think of those experiences. I could certainly think of my life as a literacy educator. I began my career in a middle school classroom in the South Bronx in New York City. I was teaching literacy to 12 year olds. And of course, in that context, then annotation took on a very formal discipline-specific meaning, how we help students to comprehend a text, make meaning, perhaps even provide feedback to their peers when annotation becomes a little bit more social. And then over the course of my training and my doctoral studies, as I began to think about digital media and civic media and how people use all kinds of tools and languages to really interact with one another in more dare I say, equity-oriented or even more just ways, um, I began to appreciate that there are a whole repertoire of social annotation technologies and social annotation practices that are really helping us to bring again about a language of annotation that is really quite incredible. And so now, again, I see it, as you were saying earlier in the introduction, you kind of begin to see this everywhere you look. There are artists like Alexandra Bell who create these large posters where redaction and addition of words to things like a New York Times headline help to confront racial bias and stereotypes, as well as gender narratives, and literally rewrite dominant mainstream narratives, again, around identity in a project that in her art, she called a counter narrative. And we might look at park rangers. And there was a great example of this recently who went to the signage around Muir Woods in California and began to print out and label um, and corrective history of really updating and fact checking the record of how particular people's legacies are represented in narrative of place. And so whether I'm looking at the news, I'm visiting a park, I'm looking at the built environment, or I'm in my classroom with my students, I'm drawing upon the practices of annotation to help me make sense of my interactions with texts, which of course surround us all over the place, but also my interactions with other people and how through our collaborations together, we can then relate to those texts in more you know, authentic ways, maybe critique those narratives in ways that are necessary, and then build new narratives that you know, can point towards more inclusive and just learning futures. When you talked about the middle school classroom, I was curious because you talked about annotation taking on a more formal disciplinary approach. 
I know you well enough to know that that probably doesn't mean what I think it means in the sense of you probably experienced your own sense of resistance against the tradition. I'm thinking that, like, I, I never really grew up with the diagramming sentences. I know enough about diagramming sentences to know that I don't wish to ever learn that thing. And then I also know there's a lot about the red pen and the, the psychology behind, you know, marking up every single thing that's wrong with this and not helping people find their voice. Would you share a little bit about what you remember about annotation and and, and how you, you took it and maybe wrestled with it in a different way? Because I'm sure there's more to the story than just you teaching them how to diagram sentences. Or... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, the red pen, of course, is a classic trope right? For many educators and perhaps many students of a certain, maybe a few generations here, that is an image that is associated with assessment, but also maybe affect, fear, failure, judgment, worth. And so we can see here that again, the practices of marking up a paper, whether that's again, a teacher grading an essay, or students who are then again, doing maybe a close read of a mentor text, they may be taught conventions in doing so. Again, these kind of more formal conventions, putting an asterisk in the margin, underlining a word, circling a phrase, bracketing a term or even a method. And we see those carrying forward. I was actually leading a professional learning workshop at a university, of course, on Zoom, but just last week. And I asked the participants, all faculty, what are your personal histories of annotation? And one of the participating faculty members who's not in the humanities or in the social sciences, but is in the STEM fields, said that she had been taught a particular convention system in her high school classroom when she was a teenager that she still uses today when marking papers in certain contexts. Now, she was very reflective about the benefits and maybe even the drawbacks of that, but I think that many of us have some fuzzy memory or even some very formal association with the proper way to mark up a text, even if it might be uncomfortable or taboo in some cases to write in a book. And so I've always been curious about that. I've always, to some degree, resisted that. And I can't help but mention now in this context that in this new project called Annotate 22, one of the early entries, I wanted to reference this history, this kind of legacy that you're mentioning. And so the entry in this case from January 13th, so the 13th entry in this case, was a image that's gotten a lot of play online of an essay that was written by Jacques Derrida, the famed philosopher, of course, but it was done when he was a teenager, and it includes the marked up comments of his instructor and the grade that his instructor gave to Jacques Derrida when he was a teenager. And the quote here among quite a few is, from again, the instructor in this essay, you seem to be constantly on the verge of something interesting, but somewhat you always fail to explain it clearly. And the final grade is a 10 out of 20. And so here we see this classic example in red pen of an instructor marking up someone who became again, in some people's opinions, a very famous philosopher. Maybe that's a separate debate. It's all to say though that those persist, those images and those practices. And I think that it's important to recognize that as annotation so that we can appreciate if and when it is welcome, but also critique it if it is in this case problematic. Mm. 
Well, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to let you, we are recording this interview on February the 16th. So I know we will, we will not have the full time because it'll take a while for this to air, but I'm going to just sit back and let you reflect a little bit on the annotation is project, the annotate 22 and some of the ones that have really either sparked something in you or that you've just seen spark things in others and just let you reflect for a little while on the progress that you've made and talk a little bit about that from this year so far. Fantastic. You know, and again, we'll share links to the monthly blog posts. And I'll just mention that the examples I'm going to share are all visual. And so I'll briefly talk through a few and my rationale behind sharing these with the, again, hope that listeners visit these online resources. So I wanted to begin the project on January 1st, again, with an example of annotation that I think many people cherish, which is a book inscription. So even if people feel as though it's taboo, again, to write in a book, that that defaces the value of this material object, that even those folks who might cringe at writing in a book will value a book that is inscribed, that is inscribed with a kind of personal dedication. And there's a wonderful project out of the University of Virginia called Book Traces, and it's an open project that I link to their website through, again, my example. And so the very first entry in Annotate 22 is a dedication that is dated June 5th, 1908. And it is also accompanied by a flower that was pressed inside the pages of the book. And the dedication reads, quote, I give this June day to Miss Gordon Bottomley, the inside of this book, Michael Field, June 5th, 1908. Now, interestingly enough, Michael Field was a pseudonym. It was a pen name for two other individuals who wrote together and that was Catherine Bradley and her niece, Edith Cooper. And there's a really fascinating literary history about who, quote, Michael Field was. And in fact, these two women and who they were and why they wrote together. And so I wanted to begin this entire project with an example of annotation that, again, people may cherish, a book inscription, but also with a bit of hidden history around feminism and identity and why people may use pen names from an example that's now over 100 years old. So there's January 1st. Again, scrolling through some of this, some of the entries are particularly topical because of how they reference a particular date. And again, listeners will know I take a pretty critical um, stance towards my work as an educator and as a professor. And so I didn't want these examples to be, in that case, kind of bereft of, of context, of historical context. And so I think it's important to note that on January 6th of this year, it was the one-year anniversary of the Capitol insurrection. And I felt it would be hard to not honor that in some way. And interestingly enough, there's a very provocative, if not really quite troubling example of annotation from the insurrection. Um, One of the insurrectionists, Jacob Chansley, who broke into the Senate chamber, wrote on a piece of paper that belonged to then Vice President Mike Pence. And that annotated document has now been used by the FBI in prosecuting his case. And so I include a screenshot from a video that the New Yorker took during the insurrection of this individual writing on a piece of paper that again belonged to then Vice President Pence. And so I just find again these examples to be everywhere we look even in very challenging and in some cases still quite painful and lingering examples. And so I want daily entries to sometimes echo historical 
events, right? So there's an example from January 6th. I also want to mention that we have, or I should say, I have a commitment to working with authors and educators and community members who I've engaged with in previous contexts. And so on this podcast, Bonnie, I've mentioned, for example, a project that I've done with other educators to read and discuss literature about critical literacies and equity-oriented learning, and it's called the Marginal Syllabus. And we've been kind of going on and off with that project with our partners over the years. Back in 2017, I had the honor of connecting with Debbie Reese, who's considered to be a leading national expert in indigenous literacies, has written extensively about the representation of indigenous peoples, particularly in children's literature. And so Debbie and I got to know one another um, back when we did this marginal syllabus project because she was a partner author in that work. And I've always had a chance to connect with her on and off over the years. And so I follow her on Twitter and I noticed sometime in January that she was tweeting about and commenting on a really problematic, if not, let's just say overtly racist classroom lesson and worksheet that she had been shown by another colleague. And so she was able to get an image of this worksheet and she annotated it. And she added, like you were referring to earlier, like almost like a label and that label said not recommended, you know. And so I contacted Debbie and I got her permission. And so the January 26th entry from this new project is annotation is not recommended because that's what Debbie wrote. And I quote Debbie, it provides a uh, kind of her analysis of this classroom worksheet. It links back to her blog. And this was to me a really good example of trying to support more equity-oriented literacy education, particularly in the context of, again, K-12 classrooms, showing in the case of Debbie's work that this kind of rejection of a very problematic worksheet was done through annotation, and that the really that kind of technical ease by which she marked up the digital version of this worksheet, not recommended in really big red letters, provided a really lovely opportunity for me to, again, reestablish a conversation with her and then again, get her permission to share this as a part of the project. So those examples, and there's a few in here where there are, again, educators and scholars and folks that I've come across, you know, in the, the, you know, the course of my work, whose perspectives and whose annotations are also a featured part of the project. So that's just, a, that's just three from January. Again, this is happening mm-hmm. every day. I should mention also that every month I'm changing the way in which I describe annotation. And so January was annotation is as a way to provide some foundational definitions and examples. And in February, we've shifted to annotation on. And so as one more example, and then I'll stop rambling because I could just do this forever. <laughs> Some of the work in my preparation for this project is really deeply immersing myself in, again, historical moments, digital exhibits, ways of trying to find really, I think, interesting examples of how we see annotation appear. And so, of course, with February is now Black History Month and trying to honor that in a way that feels authentic, if I can say so, not superficial, and again, does so in a way that might provide a perspective 
or a point of entry to something new in some new way. And so I was um, really taken by the fact that the Woolworths lunch counter is now physically been moved into the Smithsonian and that a digital version of this iconic moment in civil rights history is now a digital exhibit that is annotated. And so on February 1st, that was the day in 1960 that Joseph McNeil, Franklin McCain, David Richmond, and Jabril Kazan also were the Greensboro Four, quote unquote, known as the Greensboro Four. They began their sit-in protests on February 1st, 1960. There's a single photograph from that first day when they were leaving the Woolworths counter. They, of course, returned subsequently, and there's additional media documentation from their subsequent days of of their sit-in. But the Greensboro Four began that sit-in on February 1st. And so on February 1st now of 2022, I wanted to reference that, again, specific date. And again, coincidentally, the counter where they sat is not only now in the Smithsonian, but it's actually digitally available online in a way that is annotated. And so you can visit yourself right now, that lunch counter, and it has all these interactive labels and all this multimedia that has been kind of layered onto this text. And so if you've never seen that lunch counter before, if you've maybe not acquainted yourself with a really important moment in American history, you can do so by navigating the annotations of this exhibit. And so again, in my entry from this February 1st, I provide a link to the Smithsonian Magazine. It's writing about the exhibit, which is again at the National Museum of American History as a part of that entire you know, complex. And then the images that I include as a part of my project, you have an example of these digital annotations that have been added in the exhibit online to this actual material lunch counter. And so February began with annotation on the Woolworth lunch counter. So I'll, I'll leave that there. Now I'm really rambling about these examples, but I just find it so, for me, very meaningful and engaging to dig into, in some cases, history in new ways that, again, shows how common and accessible and also provocative annotation can be. I would hardly call what you've been doing rambling. I would call it riveting in all seriousness. And I think sometimes for me, and, I, and I'm sure for some people listening, this can be exhilarating, but also intimidating. So I'm going to invite you to shrink it down for us and remind us that it really is everywhere. And then I'm going to ask you to blow it up and, and talk about going big. So start it out with, if a person listening feels, gosh, how do I even this feels big. This feels, I mean, how could I, you know, how could I read this stuff? How could I engage or would I even want to, or how could I maybe take some of my values or the things that I, I know more about? I know which, which faucet is hot and which one is cold. Uh, how can I start, start small and, and not just, cause I think that's um one of the problems with when we care about things, but they feel really big that it, it, it creates inaction. And I, I, one more thing, and then I'll stop. I'll actually let you answer the question. I think the other thing is to allow ourselves, and it can be kind of laziness on our part or, or just 
not being willing to get messy. No, I mean, because because I think I look at you, Remy, and I go, oh my gosh, she's there's no way I could ever. And it's like, well, this isn't a competition, first of all. But I think maybe we don't see the messiness of just getting started to talk to someone like you who's so deep in this that really sees it in in so many aspects of your life. So how how do we start small with this and not not allow ourselves the excuse that it's too hard or or you know sure. only for the experts? Sure, sure. Well, I think that actually messiness is an important entry point. And let me you let me take that as an opportunity to talk about the example of cookbooks. You know, if you're looking for a place to get started and you want to embrace the idea that you are an annotator, start with a cookbook. You know, I've been gifted from both my grandmother, who is 94 years old and still alive and kicking, and also my mother. I've been gifted with some of their cookbooks and their handwritten adjustments to a recipe, their you know, notes on even a slip of paper that's then tucked into a cookbook. I have the gift of those cookbooks now in my kitchen. And so I would encourage folks who want to start small to find those everyday texts like a cookbook where we feel like it's okay to write in a cookbook. And maybe we want to because we have to adjust this recipe a little bit, too much sugar, a little bit more, you know, more salt or adjust to, you know, the ratio of something. And there are many, I think, contexts like that where we can find cookbooks or the back of a photograph. You know, before we all were carrying cell phones in our pockets and purses, perhaps we were cherishing printed out photographs where on the back we would write the date or we would write a small family memory about what was photographed. And so again, maybe you have a shoebox in a closet or under your bed from, you know, generations back of cherished family memories and photographs. And maybe as a way of recalling the relevance of those moments with a nice little pencil or maybe a pen writing on the back of those photographs. And so for me, those are the really small entry points into recognizing annotation as an everyday practice. We are writing on texts and we're also writing on different kinds of media. And you know, the only other example I'll very briefly mention if folks want a more digital example of this would be memes. I think that many folks, particularly those who are going to listen to this podcast, probably have some experience on social media, not only reading memes, but maybe also making them that we somehow feel like, oh yeah, I can go to some meme website and find that you know, photograph that everybody is sharing and type in a few words to make an inside joke. That's annotation. You're taking a text, you're adding a note to it, you're remixing it in some way, you're adding your particular stance, and you're also doing so in a social context. Memes are, of course, you know, a kind of social text. They have a social life. And so those are for me, from cookbooks to actual photographs that have been printed out, you know, to maybe in a digital space, memes, those are all, I hope, pretty small ways and pretty everyday entry points to appreciating the ways in which we are annotators in the various domains of our daily life. All right. I promised we were going to go small, but we're going big. So what about those of us that have had a chance to play around a little bit, maybe experimented with social annotation, familiar with the tools, et cetera. What are some of the things that other people are doing and you would encourage or that you would encourage us to do to go bigger with annotation? Well, I think the bigger thing here that I might point out, which I'm trying to do in the project is just provide a trail. And so I know that sounds simple and also maybe a little ambiguous, but one of the things that I'm doing in, from a more technical perspective is curating media on my blog 
following again principles of fair use and open access and you know all of those kind of proper attribution practices to give people credit where credit is due of course but curating the corpus of these examples these entries not only on my blog but then also doing so on social media and so having twitter threads where people can easily kind of move their way back through this is a kind of linear narrative and linear in that case actually being quite helpful but then from a slightly different technical perspective i am using a social annotation technology that i've spoken about briefly before with you and i know folks are familiar with it and i know bonnie you love to add your notes here and there it's called hypothesis it's free it's open but it provides an indelible mark that people can then meander through if i annotate an online resource of hypothesis and then I maybe tag it, I'm able to then curate a trail, a pathway. And so one of the big picture ideas for me here is that this is my project. This is my take on annotation. This is my little kind of everyday celebration of the critical and the creative qualities of annotation. But what I'm also trying to do is leave a trail. I'm trying to leave a step-by-step -step process so that other people, if they feel inclined to do so, can also make their process visible to others. They can make their thinking, they can make their media creation, they can make all of these kind of different points of engagement, be it on a blog or on social media or on this kind of annotation layer across the entire web, they can find their way. And I think that that's a really, for me, important stance towards how we kind of curate open knowledge how we make our thinking and our work processes more accessible and available to other people. And I do think from, again, that really kind of big picture perspective, to me, this is an act of public pedagogy. This is me as somebody who cares deeply about the educational value of annotation saying, hey, this is like Ramey's open webinar, <laughs> Ramey's open workshop, Ramey's kind of open example of annotation for this entire year. Come and hang out. These are all the different ways to play along. These are all the different ways to read along. And hey, here's kind of how I'm doing it. You can kind of get behind the scenes a little bit if you really want to kind of dig deeper in that kind of bigger picture sense. Oh, this is so exciting. I have been following a little bit. A couple of the stories that you shared were familiar, but one thing that I don't think I've done, I, I don't, I think I haven't subscribed on RSS because I like to, I like to be part of more of the ongoing conversation and it has felt a little bit sporadic for me. So thank you for today's conversation because I feel like I, that's the beauty of it. You've created a trail. And even if I missed it, I mean, this is not that late in the year that it couldn't be revisited on our own time and to go back and engage. Like you said, that trail is there and um, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I'm very aware that Twitter is fleeting people's attention to even blog posts can be, oh, I can't quite fit it in. The idea is that, again, I want to lay down a pathway that other people can choose to walk at any point in time. And so they can revisit these, again, trails at their own time mm -hmm. as driven by their own interest. Yeah, well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And my recommendations somewhat tie back a little bit to the first story I told about the bathroom tub because I mentioned the label maker. And it's kind of funny because we, we've we been teaching this class on personal leadership and productivity for, uh, gosh, almost 10 years now. And one of the books we read is called Getting Things Done by David Allen. And I have I have sort of a funny association because I realize I don't use one of the he, he talks about tools that you need. So one of the tools is pens, markers, stickies, those kinds of things that I think many of us use. <laughs> 
Raimi holds them up behind him. And and then he also talks about rubber bands. And I have found I have a, an aversion toward rubber bands. And so do many students that I get to, to walk alongside. And then where we really part ways is I have a fondness for label makers. And in general, they do not. This is not something that they have a fondness for. So I'm actually going to go on a limb here and recommend label makers. I actually... We own multiple ones as a family, but I have literally sitting on my desk two of them because one of them does the skinnier kind of tape that you might put on a manila folder or a faucet. And then the other one does the thicker address labels that the paper is a little bit thinner on. But I'm going to recommend a label maker. And then from there, I'm going to recommend two ways that you could make use of your label maker. Actually, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent. You could actually not even buy a label maker, but print labels. So I'm going to recommend that you use a web service called Canva to make a book plate. And I've really tried to find pre-printed book plates that met my specifications and none of them did. (laughs) And so we have uh, some books that people can check out from our Institute for Faculty Development. So I had some really fun times making those. And then I love loaning books out as well. I, a lot of the publishers will send me books and I, I mostly do my reading digitally. So I love to get those out into the world where I can and kind of pass that on. And so I have a little bit just that they know it belongs to me and to, to get it back my way when they're done with it. So using Canva to make a book plate is my second recommendation. And then my third recommendation, this is Mac specific, but I know that there would be a way to do this on Windows. I'm going to recommend an app called Card Hop. Again, other apps can do this, but to print individual address labels. I love the idea of reducing friction in our lives. And so I have this little card hop app. I could go there and, and Ramey, if I had your address, I could just type in your name and do my little command P and it's ready to go. And literally two seconds later, there it is, which those of us that have done mail merge or like trying to do it out of a big printer, I mean, we are living in a fun age today where it's that easy to print out an address label. So again, whatever your app of choice is or whatever, if you do have a label printer, the fact that they can print out just one individual address label feels like a miracle to me. But then you can also create groups. Maybe you've got you've got holiday cards or or whatever it is that you might be, you know, sending things out. Um, I just think that label makers, labels in general, book plates, it's a fun little playground to to play in. And I highly recommend it. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'll also share briefly three recommendations. All of course are very much related to annotation. So I'll begin by mentioning a book that has been really helpful for me for a whole variety of reasons. It's Catherine D'Ignazio, Lauren Klein's book, Data Feminism. And it was published a few years ago now, but it was recently made, uh, open access. And so it's through MIT Press, publisher of my book as well. And so that's actually where I first became familiar with data feminism, because when data feminism was going through its review, the authors decided very intentionally to open this up for a kind of open peer review process and received through a publishing platform called PubPub feedback from readers on the very first initial draft of the entire manuscript. And it informed then the subsequent revisions, which became the final version of Data Feminism. And now that's entirely open as an open access publication. And so I've always held the book, of course, in terms of its content and its new perspectives and its criticality in very high esteem. And I've always appreciated the ways in which, again, Kathy D'Ignazio and Lauren Klein have modeled 
a kind of, again, public pedagogy and kind of open scholarly stance through the various stages of the life of this book, which again, now any of you who are listening can find it right now and access in, you know, entirely free in its, in its open version. So that's my first recommendation. Um, my second actually comes from the organization JSTOR, which again, I think many folks in higher ed and academia, whether you're, you know, whatever role you may be in are probably familiar with JSTOR. They have a new annotation initiative or an annotation project, we might call it, where they are linking primary source scholarship to kind of foundational documents in, at least so far, American history to, again, make some of their resources more open and accessible to kind of participate in some kind of open scholarly process and do so through this kind of annotation of a primary source. And so they have two entries so far. One is the Declaration of Independence and the other is Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. But the primary sources are then linked to JSTOR resources that readers can then also access openly. So I think that's a kind of fun new project that I'm very much intrigued by and will be continuing to follow. And then the third thing I'll mention briefly is the National Monument Audit which is an audit of monuments in America. It's done by the Monument Lab. They have an amazing website that we can make sure that we include the link to that folks can look at aspects of this report. You can also request copies of this audit. But of course, monuments are texts. They have authors. They very much reify particular narratives about whose histories perhaps are or are not a part of particular dominant narratives. And monuments are, of course, very much contested in our current social and political moment, in my opinion, for all kinds of good reason. And so this audit of the kinds of iconography that appear in the built environment that people walk by when they're going through a park or a plaza, this to me is a really incredible resource to help think about the ways in which monuments shape daily narratives and how we might, through other work that the Monument Lab is doing, reimagine the future of memorials and monuments and remembrance, particularly in public spaces. And so the National Monument Audit, I think, is a really powerful text for folks to have a look at. Mm. Every time I get a chance to talk to you, this will be one of those delightful times where I go slowly through composing the show notes because I'm going to have such a delight going down so many fun engaging and challenging rabbit trails. So thank you in advance for that. And um, thank you for coming back on the podcast and sharing about this. I Hopefully you'll keep coming back because I want to talk and, and see what happens between February 16th and beyond. This is such an exciting project. Thank you for all that you're doing through your work. Bonnie, thank you. And thank you again for providing a platform for so many of us. I know that you've now, is it 400, right? You've gone past 400. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the legacy that you've established in, you know, so many different education circles, you're providing a resource that is, of course, just invaluable. And so just thank you for letting me be a part of, you know, one small part of this incredible endeavor. So thank you so much. Thank you once again to Ramey Kalir for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. It's number 404. And if you'd like to access the show notes, you can do so probably already on whatever you use to listen to the show on, on your phone podcast player. You can probably swipe one way up, down, left, right in order to access those show notes or head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 404. 
And if you'd like to not have to remember to get those show notes, they can come into your inbox as part of the Teaching in Higher Ed weekly update. And you'll receive the most recent episodes, show notes, along with some quotable words, other recommendations that don't show up on the regular show. You can subscribe to the weekly update at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. 